Andy Tobler, Truth Warrior, Woke Destroyer, on News Talk STL. Welcome back to the third hour of the Tobler Show, live here on this Thanksgiving holiday weekend. Appreciate you being with us here on 101.9-941 News Talk STL. And I've been uh, wanting to talk with uh, Doug Belkin, who covers the college beat out of the Chicago Bureau for the Wall Street Journal, about uh, a great article that uh, that he wrote, uh, A Generation of American Men Give Up on College, uh, in the journal back in September. Glad we could connect. Thanks for joining me, Mr. Belkin. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks very much for the invitation. Hey, you know, I, I first heard Jordan Peterson on one of his many uh, know, talks, podcasts, talk about the increasing disparity in college um, enrollment, graduation, especially at the graduate level, about, uh, you know, between men and women, with women just, just cleaning the guy's clocks in terms of their college uh, performance and, and, and achievement, and, well, achievement, I guess, as referenced by, uh, you know, the, the graduate uh, attendance. But then I saw your article, and it really summed up what he had touched on, and I thought it was fascinating. I wasn't aware that there was such a disparity in attendance of college, and things aren't getting better, are they, for men? The gender gap is growing. Uh, this starts really early. Uh, the, the, I mean, even the high school graduation rate is is, is uh, uh, the, the gap is growing. So the, pretty much at every level, women are outperforming men in uh, in school, uh, be it K to twelve, college or graduate school. And one of the things you mentioned, you mentioned an admissions. Uh Counselor, uh, Assistant Vice President of Enrollment Strategy uh, at Baylor, said that uh, you know she has to she has an outreach to moms saying, "Hey, moms, get with your kids and your boys and make sure that they're getting their transcripts in." So, I mean, is it really justified? Are guys earning their lack of enrollment, or is they not interested? What What do you sense is the root cause of this? Is it cost? Are they listening to Mike Rowe too much and they're realizing, "Hey, I'd rather be a a plumber than a physical chemist." I think one of the things that makes this story so interesting is that there's so many variables at play, and people see and smell and sense a lot of them, and it's hard to quite put your finger on the root of it all, but but something's changing, um, and, and so you can perceive it, right? So what you just mentioned about the idea that a degree isn't worth the cost or the time, and it's better to go into the trades, and Mike Rowe's been championing this idea for a long time, and there's a lot of veracity to what he's saying. Uh, so, so that certainly, I think, has taken root among a lot of guys who tend to be more oriented toward finding a career path that's going to make them money uh, as opposed to learning for learning's sake. So, so that's happening. Um, I think the, the men are having a harder time concentrating. Uh, they're getting tracked earlier on uh, into the, the sort of slow groups. I mean, you're talking about before third grade, the literacy gap between boys and girls is significant even by third and fourth grade. Um, so when it comes time to go to college, girls are much more prepared. They have they have their stuff together and look much much more. Uh, you know, so that interview with a woman out of Baylor, what she was saying was, I have to keep on the moms to keep on the sons to get their admissions applications in on time because they won't do it, uh, and so we won't have enough applications from the boys. I can I can juice the numbers a little bit if we're able to get the moms to stick on the boys. But the girls are doing just fine. So the girls are just a lot more conscientious at 17 uh, than the boys are. And that's one yeah. of, like I said, many reasons why yeah. the girls are showing up at mass and ready to go. Yeah. And the boys are moving out to lunch. 
Yeah, I wonder how much of this really has its root cause. Like you, like you referenced back in the at the elementary level. I remember when I was an elementary student. Um, you know, it was always a good, comp- a healthy competition between the boys and the girls to see who could raise their hand first when the when the teacher asked a question. You know, the boys fared pretty well; they did okay, um, and they weren't pigeonholed when they were acting like boys on the playground or in the halls and being what uh, being boys. There was some allowance for the fact that God forbid we say this. There actually is a gender difference in maturation levels, in prefrontal cortex, of neuronal development. I mean, there's just a difference in boys and girls. And like you say, I wonder how much of this gets back to, well, these boys are just not performing. So we're just going to pigeonhole them in some kind of laggard group and they're going to spend time in the principal's office. And, uh, you know, it's easy to let the girls succeed. So let's do that rather than realize the differences. Uh, allow some different boundaries for, for the guys. Instead, we put them on medications, right? I mean, I, 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 I witnessed that in the 90s among my patients and heck, my my doc, my doc kids' doctors for crying out loud. Or am I over am I over uh, emphasizing that too much? You know, I think, I think it's, it's a, a critical part of this happened and there's sort of three things that feed into it and, and uh, um, if you've spoken to Warren Farrell, who's really done some kind of um, tremendous research on this and pulled a lot of this stuff together. And some of the stuff that he said is that, uh, first of all, the um, the curriculum in elementary schools and kindergarten uh, has sort of become more sedentary. They pushed the learning of literacy down into kindergarten and girls are, the advantage that girls have, their, their, their prefrontal cortex development is much greater at that age. So boys don't grasp it as well. They get squirming in their seats at greater levels, they're not allowed to move or told not to move as much. Um, so they get turned off by school. So by third grade, a lot of them just don't like school. So mm-hmm. part of it may be curriculum. Part of it may be the idea that competition is problematic. Competition leads to violence, uh, right? This is sort of uh, some of the some of the wisdom that you hear at the elementary schools, and we have to curb that. So don't compete. Um, mm-hmm. And boys are a little bit more hardwired to do that. Um, so, so that becomes a problem for why boys uh, may have not like schools. And then, as you mentioned, this idea that there are um, medications to fix these boys who are often treated as broken girls, and that um, that becomes wow. that becomes the de facto standard. Um, and if they can't match that, then there's a problem. Very, very interesting. Wow. Uh, broken boys. Wow. I hadn't heard that before. And then you uh, you write about Ed Grachalski, a senior vice president of Junior Achievement USA. You know, that that organization that teaches kids to how to be, you know, little business people and be organized and structured. And, you know, it's a great thing. They they give, uh, what, five million students every year. They, they teach about uh, career paths and financial literacy and entrepreneurship. And he talks about a hope deficit. Young men get little help in part, you write, because schools are focused on encouraging historically underrepresented students. So is it a perfect storm where we've, we're not representing the differences between boys and sort of punishing the difference, the, the biological differences between boys and girls and structuring it to advantage one or the other? And at the other time, if you're going to have affirmative action, whatever, whatever fixed pie of affirmative action there is at college level is now being routed to historically, quote, big air finger, quote, underrepresented minorities, right? People of color. Well, it used to be women. I don't think there's any affirmative action anymore for women. So the, the boys are sort of caught in the middle, right? 
whether you know the whether or not there's affirmative action for women is, is a debatable point. If you go to a college, you're going to see women's centers at 500 schools. You're going to see a lot of programs that are encouraging women to do take leadership roles to run for student government. One of the things that never made that story was the idea that I mean it isn't a story, but the idea that there are programs to encourage women to run for student government even though they're already overrepresented in student government. So why do you need the oh, program wow. to to push them forward? Um, you know, I think five years ago that was that was necessarily important, um, and certainly women are still underrepresented in in, uh, in Congress and such. So you can make an argument, but but the encouragement um, uh, for boys isn't there now. You know, the argument against this is that uh, universities were built by essentially rich white men for their sons, and so these are these are places where the paradigm is to encourage boys, and um, so they don't need it. So that's sort of a counter argument to this. This, this sort of thing. The other, I think, big shift that's moving the needle on this story is that dads aren't around, right? I think uh, it's something like 44% of kids are growing up in a home without a dad. And mm-hmm. that it has a larger impact on little boys than it does on little girls. Little boys are a little bit more fragile than little girls. Mm-hmm. And the impact on a fatherless home uh, yeah, it hurts them a little bit more. Even where the dad is available, kids are being raised by screens. So something like a teenager in America is looking at a a screen 40 hours a week and speaking to their father 30 minutes a week. So there's a disconnect between this idea of male leadership. I think that's what Ed was getting at, was that boys don't have models and mentors in the way that they did a couple of generations ago. And that's coming home to roost. Wow. It's really, I don't know, it's a collision that is not healthy as I see it. I mean, of course, we want to see everyone have a good chance and, you know, with uh, skill, uh, hard work, grit, and a little bit of luck, you know, everyone wants a chance to succeed. But I think that the odds are being stacked, as you chronicle in this article uh, in the journal back in September so well, and I I would really commend it to everyone. If I can switch gears, because I know you cover the college scene, uh, both two- and four-year college. I don't know if you saw this uh, this story out of Canada with a minority professor who, uh, I can't pronounce his name, Patanjali Kambampati, <laughs> uh, but he's an Indian guy who, despite himself being really the 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 the, the object of a lot of racial uh, epithets and, and even some physical abuse throughout his life, he's a he's a physical chemist, chemist, and he is being denied grants by the government of uh, of Canada because, oh God forbid, he awards grades and, you know, advances students based on their merit and on their excellence and on their performance. And um, rather than so much on diversity and inclusion considerations, and now he's being uh, really punished by the government for that. I mean, it's happening across universities in America, too, isn't it? I didn't know if you'd seen that story, but your thoughts on that whole movement in in college? I've not seen that story. It's interesting. This this is happening inch by inch around the country and really across education. And and, and what it is is the the I don't know, the removal of objective standards. They they have they have become objects of derision because they're considered to be um, measures of racism or uh, you know kids who have been held back by by things that, you, that show up on on these on these tests. And there's some merit in this. I mean, if you look at the SATs, for instance, it tracks very closely uh, with household income. The problem becomes, um, how do you measure achievement if you don't measure achievement, if there's no standardized tests? And uh, and so schools are pushed back and saying, in order to be anti-racist, we need to 
take a second look at how we measure the accomplishments of kids. And if, if we're not going to use tests, if we're going to expand what an A is from uh, 90 to 100 to 85 to 100, um, you know, th- that will pull some kids up, but by lowering the standards, it essentially hurts the kids who've worked the hardest and achieved the most. So there's a collision happening around the country. Canada is, uh, I think, a year or two ahead of us in terms of the, the kind of progressive agenda in education. Uh, Dr. Peterson made his name by pushing back against, as you know, the uh, uh, you know the language there uh, that they were trying to, to to push down on him. So um, th- these little skirmishes are popping up around the country. The SAT was the largest, um, the, the, the most high profile when they when they banned when they got rid of that almost entirely. Uh, across the country, it's happening now with tests. It's happening with grades. Uh, I don't see where that ends, and it's going to create some issues um, uh, in terms of transcripts and you know grading with honors. Who did better? That question used to be pretty, pretty simple. It's not, I think it's it's becoming a little more complicated. Yeah, I mean, when you got a professor that focuses on laser science, clearly there are objective, you know, the laser points in the right direction with the right wavelength in the right collimation, or it doesn't. And, you know, how else are you going to judge your students? He He's quoted as saying, if I want to focus on merit, fairness, and equality, then you get called out as a racist or sexist. His application for a $450,000 grant from the Natural Sciences and Engineering Research was turned down, council, was turned down because the council said, quote, the equity, diversity, and inclusion considerations in the application were deemed insufficient. Wow. Whoa, whoa, whoa. We got trouble in River City, Doug. <laughs> this is, it's coming to a country near uh, near us. Well, I mean, did, and you saw the tweet in the in the wake of the Rittenhouse uh, uh, verdict from uh, the two uppity-ups, the higher-ups, the dean, and I think the vice dean at, uh, was it University of Santa Cruz, that basically they were angry in the, at the uh, lack of accountability for the, for the jury verdict. I mean, that's now, of course, going to be what's expected if you're going to be a successful student at uh, Santa Cruz in California and across the land, right? I mean, they set the tone and the tenor. And certainly, students are have to be intimidated if if those kind of um, woke politically correct you know pronouncements are made at the highest levels you got to look over your shoulder if you're writing your term paper in the political science class like boy i better i better toe the party line or else right i mean that's what i'm worried about yeah there's 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 a concern that there's an intellectual monoculture that's being created on campuses and i've I've interviewed a lot of students about this and a lot of faculty uh, and alumni and it really depends, I think, on where you're sitting. The students seem a little bit less concerned about it. But, of course, if you've been, you know, this is the bathwater you were raised in, you may be a little bit less aware of it. Um, uh, older alumni from, from uh, you know, who graduated in the 60s and 70s, um, a little bit more sensitive to it. The faculty tend to be very sensitive to it. Um, uh, but the administrators um, oftentimes are concerned. You know, there's something called the Chicago Principles. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but they... Uh, they came out in 2014, and they said that it's really critical to respect viewpoint diversity, and that's a central tenet of that. And that has been adopted by uh, 82 colleges and universities around the country. That's oh yes, I remember that was and, a counter tide. That was a counter force yeah. to the to the woke tide. Yeah, yeah, okay. Uh-huh. That's right. Yeah, and, and, and those those two things have sort of uh, are pushing against one another across college campuses. It'd be very interesting to see how many more schools adopt that or create their own variable of Chicago principles that try to stand uh, up to protect uh, diverse viewpoints. Yeah. 
Do you have any data on whether, because I've seen, I've, I've read a lot, I've seen a lot on the Twitter sphere, uh, among alumni, as you referenced, that are saying, hey, you know, let's, I, I'm not going to donate to my alum, uh, my school anymore. I am, I'm encouraging people not to apply, have their children apply to, to my alumni, uh, alumni school. You know, and I'm wondering, is there, is that kind of an economic um, boycott, if you will? Uh, having any traction in uh, in academia, and are are the leaders in academia taking note of it? I think that there's some note being taken of it. The problem right now from the, that issue is that the stock market is very high, gifts are pretty high, um, and schools rely depends on what type of school that you're in with regard to uh, how important alumni donations are. So a small private liberal arts school, close to twenty percent of their operating budget is connected to alumni donations. We're talking about, you know, a big public research university is probably closer to 5%. Um, oh, okay. And endowments are pretty fat right now because the market's up so high. Um, mm-hmm. This is the sort of thing that I think if, if, if pressure is brought to bear, it will take um, a while. The public relations issue and the reputations of the schools, um, that could be an issue yeah. that's a little bit more intense. Uh, and the numbers of alumni are counted among the rankings, the various rankings, especially the U.S. News and World Report, which people pay a lot of attention to. So if a, if a smaller percentage of alumni are donating to your college, then your ranking will fall. And, and administrators, are, you know, they keep a close eye on those rankings. Yeah. Well, I know with my uh, my uh, school at the Hilltop campus, I, uh, you know, I was very vocal with them when I asked. They asked me a couple of years ago, you know, will you donate? It was a call not from the medical school, but from the main campus. And um I asked them right away. I said, do you have safe spaces on the campus? And when they said yes, I said, I'm sorry, I can't do it. You know, I mean, and of course, what's my little penny in the pond? It doesn't really matter. But I think, um, you know, at some point, reasonable people who respect diversity of opinion, that's fine. You want to have, you know, uh, you know, South African gender studies as a major, that's fine. But I, you know, I, I don't need safe spaces on a school, you know, uh, when it comes to that kind of talk. More and more of, I think, that kind of vocal opposition by the alumnus uh, community may may help. I don't know. We'll have to see. Hey, I really appreciate your insightful work on colleges, and I, I hope we can stay in touch because this is a critical, um, we're at a cri- critical point in our country. We saw it, of course, at the election with the uh, Yonkin versus McAuliffe at the at the high school level, district level last uh, last month or the, earlier this month, and I think uh, I think that's going to be transmuted to the to the college level too. I, I feel more of a tide coming on at all levels of education. We'll follow with you if you're willing in the future. We thank you for all your hard work, Doug Belkin. Thanks very much for having me on. I'm happy to be on again. Take care. All right, there he is, at Doug Belkin on Twitter. And great, great piece in uh, the Wall Street Journal back in September. And uh, I would commend it to you, ladies and gentlemen. So it's a good one. All right, we'll uh, we'll come back. And uh, and that, by the way, that um, that was uh, Doug Belkin from the Wall Street Journal. So make sure that you, you get onto that. And it's called, um, let me find it here. Uh, I'll find, we'll come back and we'll reference it again. All right, we'll come back. And I want to talk uh, with the, about the Metasphere, Metaverse, Zuckerberg, is he going to own us? I mean, we are the commodity on Facebook, and now we have to understand what is this meta all about? We'll talk with Patrick Wood from Stop the Technocracy when we come back. Stay tuned. Jay and I have had a chance to discuss his views on priorities for the Federal Reserve in the years ahead. He's made clear to me a top priority will be to accelerate the Fed's effort to address and mitigate the risk 
the risk that climate change poses to our financial system and our economy. Extreme weather has cost our economy over $600 billion over the last 10 years. Well, there was President Joe Biden somehow connecting the Fed and its actions with climate change. Wow. You have to connect some dots from a uh, an ethereal neurological wonderland that is Joe Biden's mind to try to make sense of that. I guess what he was getting at is that there will be, and he's planning on it, and I hope you enjoy it, and you better love it because it's good for you, economic carnage on you, your family, your community, and the country as he forces the square peg of immediate Green New Deal down our throats at, at any cost, right? I mean, he's he's committed Every other utterance out of this White House has to do with climate change. As we've talked about and we've interviewed people who have written about it, uh, I, I think of, uh, you know, so many authors we've talked about, writers who say, look, it may be real, but there's no, we do not need to ruin our economy because the destruction for the family, for the individual, for us collectively as a society will be much greater with the forced economic sacrifice that's required to to make this thing happen before it's time. And, um, you know, how much can be done about it when the United States is the only one falling on the sword? And he mentions, the, you know, the, the damage is, what, $160 billion over 10 years? This is nothing compared to his, well, $600 billion, right, over 10 years. Well, he's wanting to pass a $5 trillion plan. Yeah, I know it's labeled nominally at $1.7 trillion, but a $5 trillion plan when that five-year uh, plan of expenses is actually expanded to 10 years, which it will be. Those programs will not go away. Uh, free college, free preschool, you know, forgiving debt, all of that. None of that's going to go uh, go away after five years as it's planned to make the CBO score look modestly okay. That's not going to happen. And so in, in light of a $5 trillion 10-year plan, he's talking about $600 billion that we've lost on climate because of climate change. What exactly, how do they gauge that? Is it, if there's a tornado in Oklahoma City, which has been a tornado alley forever, if that, I'm sure under this administration and this ideology's construct, that's a climate change problem. And when they were predicting the world was going to freeze back in the 70s, late 60s and early 70s, remember the cover of Time magazine? Well, were the tornadoes then, were the hurricanes then attributed to climate change? So, I mean, it's all a bunch of smoke and mirrors for an agenda to which he is totally allegiant because he believes that's his electoral path to success, right? Is that going to happen? God, I I hope not. And Dr. Tobler, we have caller Ray who wants to talk about climate change. Yeah. And by the way, the name of uh, Doug Belkin, uh, I had a I had a request on Messenger. The name of uh, Doug Belkin's piece, if you want to look at uh, the disparity among admissions for American men versus women in college, it's now 60-40 attendance in college in the 2021 year. A generation of American men give up on college. This is in the Wall Street Journal, Doug Belkin. I'll tweet it out here uh, after the show. Go ahead, Ray. What's in your mind? Well, just about every book I read regarding... Um, regions of the, in the wine industry starts off with climate change is natural. That is, a, you know, for, for a party that believes in science, they don't seem to cite science. You and I grew up here in Missouri. When you drive along the Mississippi and Missouri River bottom, 
these valleys were created by glacial melt. Several thousand years ago, we had a thousand foot wall of ice covering northern Missouri. It is a natural progression. Man-made climate change? No. Natural climate change? Yes, it changes. We've had multiple ice ages. Right, right. And where and where industries and opportunities may dry up in one part of the world or part of the state or part of the country, other opportunities will open where they weren't there before. I mean, I've always regretted the fact I can't raise vinifera wine grapes. I can't raise Cabernet Sauvignon. I can't raise uh, Sauvignon Blanc in my colder climate where the lair is in Missouri. But in southern Missouri, there can. There may be a time, maybe not in my lifetime, but maybe a generation from now where those those highly prized French grapes varietals can be raised in, you know, the northern Midwest. Uh, so, I, this this zero sum game and this these assumptions that are just it's sort of like the response to this COVID variant uh, coming out of South Africa. The market tanks. The world is ending. It's apocalyptic. Yeah, should we be cautious? Should we be observant? Should we be thinking about it? Obviously, we should. You know, but um, the fear mongering and the hysteria over it and ruining people's lives for generations because of uh, you know projections, which are mathematical models. I just I struggle with that, and it's. Uh, I don't know. We've got we've we've got to get some common sense and balance into our public policy. From where I stand, well, they right. Need, they need to start teaching economics, science, history, and less social justice. Oh man, how knuckle draggingly asleep you are! My goodness, Bray, you you need to be woke, bro. <laughs> All right, thanks for the call. Appreciate it. <laughs> that was good. My God, what a what a novel thought and what a radical that Ray is. I mean, he wants economics, uh, science, uh, civics, you know, and, you know, oh, my God, constitutional republic uh, education in our. I don't know where you're coming from, Ray. You're listening to the wrong station here. News talk. Uh, your CNN and MSNBC feeds, please. <laughs> It's, it's really sad. I mean, look, I want to, everyone wants clean air and clean water. And the United States has done a fabulous job in the last, what, four decades of, of getting us there. And, and would it be nice to, look, if you, if you've, I've only driven in a Tesla once. I didn't drive it. I was a passenger. Pretty cool ride. It's quiet, instant acceleration. I mean, you talk to zero to 60 in like a second. It's just amazing. More, a couple seconds. It's amazing. And so I'm not against that. But government subsidies with a wink, wink, you get a higher subsidy if you buy an electric vehicle made in a union shop. I mean, what is that all about? The government manipulation, the command and control, the the central planning, which never works out the utopian way that they want it to be. Um, and it hurts a lot of people along the way. Well, we're going to be talking about um, forcing technology and forcing it on you and abusing you with Patrick Wood from Stop the Technocracy uh, in just a little bit. But every week I try to come up with a clip that to me really embodies the essence of what this state, what, what I am about, this show is about. And, I, and I, I dare to say most of the people on this station, well, probably everyone, agrees is a fundamental founding value that we hold and can i point out this is the second time this person yes. has been your clip yep. that you've that you've pointed out here yes i know nothing about this gentleman i don't watch basketball because i don't understand the game 
as I said before, it's one of those things where I like, I'm sort of a consistent, logical kind of person. I like things to make sense. And to, if one thing is true, another like it should be true. So I've always struggled with the, how come if I touch you on the shoulder at the wrong time, it's a penalty. And another time I can bull rush you and it's not a penalty in basketball. I, don't, I understand people have explained it to me. Well, if they're in the act of throwing, <laughs> you know, shooting, I don't get it. But so whatever, that's fine. But I do listen to the basketball rhetoric and the wars and particularly with LeBron James hypocrisy and uh, some of the some of the absurd statements he's made where he wink winks at the human atrocities in uh, in China because that's a big market for his endorsements and on the other hand not so much about you know uh, there he's worried he, he just ignores what's going on with the Igers there uh, you know but yet he's so critical of uh, you know the the social injustice in the United States of America please LeBron please we're not that stupid well listen to Johnny I I think he's of the Orlando Magic. Is that he right? He is. And you know, I'm not wearing it this week, but you've seen me on Google Duo wear my Orlando yeah. Magic hoodie. I have a couple I, different ones because I, I that's my favorite team. And uh, Jonathan Isaac is an incredible player for the team. Yeah. And again, second time you featured him here on the show. Yeah. So here's what he had to say concerning kneeling, taking a, you know, taking a knee and uh, doing all of the basically joining the woke crowd at the, uh, on the on the team. Take a listen. Tell our audience why you decided not to take a knee with everyone else. Well, the, the basic answer is that, you know, I didn't agree with the way the advocacy and support for black lives was being, you know, handled in, in the situation. Um, for me, fundamentally, as a person, I believe that Jesus Christ is the answer for the problems that we see individually and ultimately, um, you know, as a whole, as, as a world. And I didn't feel comfortable, you know, in those spaces talking about that um, and holding to those beliefs. And so I didn't feel comfortable enough to lend my support to what was going on. Um, and then secondly, I just I just didn't believe that wearing the T-shirt and kneeling for the national anthem were synonymous with supporting black lives. Um, and that's how I was made to feel that if you wore the T-shirt, if you kneeled, then you support black lives and you're on our side. And if you did it, then no matter who you were, what you look like, what you've done um, or whatever your reason is, you were made um, out to have ill intentions or not care for the support of black lives at all. Wow. I mean, that says it all, right? If you, if you don't take a knee, if you don't involve, if you're not involved in the, in the symbolism, right? In the pageantry that is all about the Black Lives Matter movement. If you don't, if you don't knock down statues of, uh, of uh, Robert E. Lee, if you don't uh, hide that statue of uh, Thomas Jefferson, if you don't wear the t-shirt, you you're not one of us. Yeah, if you don't wear the T-shirt, right, you're not one of us. Yeah. And uh, but yet individually, you could be a person who is the most generous, most uplifting, as every individual I know in my network is to people who have traditionally been, uh, you know, under undervalued and underprivileged. Uh, you know, you try to. I think good Christian people I know do that, and non-Christian people I know do that. But I mean, good people. Try to lift up other people, whether they're black, white, woman, gay, trans. It doesn't matter. It's a perfect lead-in yeah. for our next guest talking about the metaverse and social media because whenever there's a perceived injustice, I see so many yes. people on social media, they'll post something or they'll have a, a you know a meme or a, a, a picture and they feel like they've done something. That's not right. doing anything. That's not helping no. anyone posting. No. And I think what no, you Johnny not, Isaac was saying is just because I wear a t-shirt doesn't right. mean anything. What does that do for anyone? Nothing. Other than, it's other grandstanding. than puff me up yeah. because I joined the crowd, right? It's, I mean, it's I don't ridiculous. Know. 
So we're going to talk about uh, the the contradistinction between doing something and posting something, being a part of the social media mob versus being an individual making a difference with Patrick Wood when we come back straight ahead here on The Tobler Show. You won't want to miss it. Welcome back to the program. I want to wrap it up this week with uh, something that's uh, alluring on the surface but frightening beneath the surface. And he's all over it. His name's Patrick Wood. He's editor-in-chief um, and author, by the way, of Technocracy Rising, the Trojan Horse of Global Transformation in 2015, co-author of Trilaterals Over Washington uh, in 78 and 80. So, um, and uh, you can uh, get in touch with Patrick on uh, on Twitter at Stop Technocracy, at Stop Technocracy. How you doing, Patrick? Thanks for joining us. I'm doing great. Thank you for having me on today. Hey, I read your story about the metaverse, and you asked the question, the final disconnect from reality? And uh, I don't know, sometimes with the reality we're living now, I'm and I've got my tongue in my cheek here, but it's like, wow, maybe that's not such a bad idea. <laughs> we're already in a, yeah. in a universe, though, where on Facebook, people only post their best stuff, generally, unless they need a prayer for an illness. But it's always sort of this idealized, fanciful, you know, uh, arranged selfie. And I guess it's going to be put on steroids if Mark Zuckerberg has his way, huh? Well, it is. And it's not just Mark Zuckerberg, by the way. He's he's has the ego that he kind of wants to be the IBM of the field, you know, like the big cheese. And he wants to own, kind of own the whole, uh, you know, the whole industry as it grows. I doubt that he will, but uh, totally. But there's lots of other companies that are investing billions of dollars into this new technology. And, um, it runs very deep and very wide, I have to say, because the world is already kind of primed for it with all of the virtual reality gaming systems that have been out there for a few years now. So the younger generation is already pretty much primed for this. But this is going to be a sea change in social structure throughout the, if Zuckerberg has his way, throughout the world, because Facebook has billions of users around the world. So this is at the same time that I'm seeing television commercials by Facebook saying, oh, we're all about, you know, making sure that you have your privacy and we endorse the proper, you know, regulation of this and we're going to be involved in that. I mean, that's just that's blowing smoke, isn't it? Isn't that a smoke screen while they go about their nefarious knowing everything about you as you write in this story, every blink of your eye? And then, uh, of course, they know more about you than you know about them. Well, what's with this regulatory wink, wink they're giving? Well, there is no regulation over the metaverse right now. And there, you have to ask, how can there be? Because Nobody else can see what you're seeing within the metaverse. And if, if people don't even know what we're talking about, it's when you put on these, these, uh, these fancy, uh, you know, surround vision, surround sound goggles on your head, and you're immersed into an environment that is completely artificial. It's uh, presented to you. It may look very, very real, however, like, you know, high resolution people, people that are walking and talking and other people's avatars and so on. Only you see what you see. Nobody else can see what you see. Nobody else can really see the real you. So there can't be any regulation of your behavior and activities. There can be some regulation on their activities, but... You know, how, again, nobody else can see into the 
uh, this this metaverse world, except for you. And if if you understand what I'm saying here, they're creating an environment where people could basically go in and be anything, do anything that they want to do, and be anybody they want to be. And that's really and so, Patrick. I know it really it sounds it sounds crazy, and that may be good if you can, let's say that you know in this time of oh so much uncertainty with COVID, and before that, uh, let's say a person wanted to go and tour the Middle East, but with all of the terrorism and everything, you may not want to. I remember I've only put on those goggles once or twice, um, and I think I took a tour of. Uh, the whole the wall, I don't know Jerusalem, and I thought, wow, that's pretty cool. I don't have to get on a plane and worry about getting shot up by a Palestinian terrorist. You know that makes sense. So I can see some entertainment value to it, but the problem is, is that going to be extricable from the manipulative opportunity that people like Zuckerberg and Google and others can take of it? Uh, you know what I mean? Because uh, there's always a double-edged sword to everything that, whether it's good on its surface and bad underneath or bad on its surface, there may be something good underneath. How do we, is there a way to manage that successfully? I don't think that there is. And of course, the the, the, the leader on this, the carrot on the stick, are those benign types of things that you mentioned here where you can go and learn things and see places you never saw and but uh, the the problem here is once you're in the metaverse, you're completely manageable. In other words, things can be suggested to you. Uh, your your mind can be tricked into seeing things that that aren't real, and that your your mind can believe things now. Now, hey, I saw it, you know, so it must be real. And all of a sudden, your mind gets. Uh, it, it can't pass back and forth the way it should between artificial reality and the real deal. Um, there's a movie put out, by the way, called Ready Player One um, a couple of years ago. And it kind of describes this thing perfectly where a guy is living in a like a slum. It's just like a you know, run down dystopian world. And. Yet when he puts on his goggles, all of a sudden he he's, he steps into the metaverse world as his icon, or he has his own avatar rather, and uh, all of a sudden he can be a big shot uh, and a you know a James Bond type when he steps into the metaverse. When he takes his goggles off later in the day, he's back in his ghetto again. It's like this is total disconnect. Um, the way people can be manipulated in this is that the metaverse will know, the software will know everything about you, things that you do and so on. It can suggest ideas to you that you never would have suggested before. And so you can be manipulated, nudged, and pushed in one direction. Just think about think about voter, uh, you know, voting, for instance, as an example. Google manipulated people for voting um, this last election cycle. They were not open about it, but there's whistleblowers that, um, that, that this is how they do it. Um, imagine what can be done if a body of people are within the metaverse, completely immersed in this artificial reality, not just doing searches on Google, but completely immersed. They could be uh, trained, manipulated to vote any which way that the metaverse programmers would want them to vote. Sure. Uh, yeah. This is not the world that we want. You know, complete, total manipulation of the human mind. Yeah. yeah. And and I guess, you know, circling back to what I said earlier and what you referenced is, yeah, there's there's the perfect uh, opportunity, right? You get lured in with the innocent, benign travel log. And the next thing you know, 
Um, and, and I think they can do this subliminally by just flashing things that you don't even know. They flash through your mind. I mean, we know that uh, advertisers can do this. Suddenly, you're being manipulated. But you could be doing a, a travel to the Antarctic or to climbing Mount Everest virtually. And, you know, once every five seconds, this blip that you don't even know about is popping in vote Vote Harris, vote Harris, vote Harris, right? That's it's frightening. Hey, well, uh, I want to I commend people to learn more about your organization. We're talking with Patrick Wood, executive director and founder of Citizens for Free Speech at citizensforfreespeech.org. And there's a lot of great material there and a cautionary tale for everyone to be very, very concerned. I was at a recent, um, uh, we were eating out before the theater last week, and we noticed a young couple with their two young children, and well, they look like grade school age. Most of the most of the time, the, kid, the the parents were on their were on their phones. I don't know what they were doing, but they were on their phones, and that's just the beginning. Next, everyone will be in their goggles, right? It's going to be crazy. Pat Wood, thanks for being with us. Uh, you can stay in touch with uh, Pat at Stop Technocracy on Twitter. Thanks for being with us, and uh, happy artificial intelligence free Thanksgiving Day holiday to you, Pat. Appreciate it. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> All right, take care. There he is, Patrick Wood at Stop Technocracy on Twitter. Well, that's going to wrap it up for another week here on The Tober Show. Hope you enjoyed the program. If you didn't catch all of it and you'd like to, maybe you were sleeping in and uh, you haven't didn't catch the first hour. We had some fun talking about movies and some other fun stuff. Um, join us uh, for the Encore, 9 to 12 tomorrow night on the, here on News Talk STL, 101.9941. For Max... And for myself, my whole family, and for Max's, we hope you guys have a rest of uh, your weekend that's uh, a beautiful start to a meaningful holiday weekend, or uh, holiday season. Max, thanks for another great show. Of course. uh, Thank you, sir. We're going to catch some of those uh, films that you were commending to us. And now, ladies and gentlemen, as we do every week, we're going to close it out with the true meaning of uh, our country and this season. Take a listen and abide. was born